1: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. What comes next? First, I'll talk to General Mark Hertling about Russia's new eastern offensive and Ukraine's efforts to counter it. Then President Zelensky announces a high-level visit of the American Secretaries of State and Defense to Kyiv today. David Miliband, Kishore Mabubani, and Anne-Marie Slaughter will join me to talk about aid to Ukraine, sanctions, the refugee crisis, and more. And as another Earth Day passes, we will bring you a big idea about how to wean countries like China and India off coal. But first, here's my take. The next phase in the war in Ukraine is now apparent. Over the next few weeks and months, Russian forces will try to expand control of their occupied territories in eastern Ukraine and dig in. The Ukrainian army and people will resist fiercely, and low-grade battles will likely persist in these areas, as they have in Donbas since 2014. That means the only way out of this conflict is to put enough pressure on Russia to force it to the negotiating table and seek sanctions relief in exchange for a peace deal. To achieve this, the coalition against it needs the staying power to maintain and even ratchet up sanctions and embargoes against Moscow. And that is only conceivable in a scenario in which energy prices come down from their current highs. If oil prices remain over $100 a barrel, and they could easily go much higher, Europe will soon enter a recession, and the entire global economy will see a drop-off of growth and political backlash against the sanctions. This would almost certainly mean the collapse of the coalition against Russia as countries would search for ways to gain cheaper energy. That is surely Vladimir Putin's hope. The only plausible path to keep the pressure on Russia while not crippling the global economy is to get oil prices down, and the only sustainable way to do this is to get the world's largest swing producer, Saudi Arabia, as well as other Gulf states, such as the UAE and Kuwait, to increase production of oil. American oil production is expanding as fast as it can. There are other paths worth trying, such as easing the embargo on Venezuela and returning to the Iran nuclear deal. But the Gulf states can easily expand production by millions of barrels a day and keep those supplies flowing well into the future. Yet despite several entreaties by the United States, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have refused to significantly increase production. And that brings us to the central issue, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. In the past, Biden has called Saudi Arabia a pariah, He has yet to hold a formal meeting with bin Salman. In return, MBS, as he's often called, has refused American requests to increase oil production and has moved to strengthen his relations with Russia and China. In a soon-to-be-published Council on Foreign Relations special report, Stephen Cook and Martin Indyk propose a grand bargain in which the U.S. would improve relations with the MBS and make more explicit pledges to protect Saudi Arabia in return for a series of Saudi moves from ending the war in Yemen to recognizing Israel to taking more explicit responsibility for the murder of journalist and Washington Post-contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi. It is an idea worth taking seriously and expanding to include the UAE, other Gulf states, and Egypt. Despite their surface disagreements with Washington, all these countries want more solid American guarantees regarding their security in an increasingly unstable Middle East. The Saudis were distressed that after the 2019 drone attacks on their oil facilities by Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen... The Trump administration did practically nothing to retaliate. The UAE faced a similar attack in January and was likewise distressed that the Biden administration was not more active in responding. There is a way for Washington to forge a new security umbrella in the region that includes Israel, Egypt, and the Gulf states. It would stabilize the security environment, foreclose the prospects of a nuclear arms race in the region, and provide access to energy for the industrialized world. But that path would have to include making up with Mohammed bin Salman. I don't make this argument lightly. Jamal Khashoggi was my friend. In fact, when I visited Saudi Arabia in 2004, he was my companion and guide. I miss him dearly even now. But the fact of the matter is, MBS is likely to rule Saudi Arabia for the next 50 years. He is an absolute ruler like all his predecessors, But within the country, he is viewed as a modernizer and is extremely popular with Saudi youth for curtailing the power of the religious police, opening up the country to entertainment and tourism, and giving women greater freedoms. Most of those who advocate continuing the ostracism of MBS do not explain when or how it will ever end, leaving U.S.-Saudi relations in a permanently frozen, dysfunctional state. International relations are often about choosing strategy over ideology. During the Cold War, Washington made common cause with Mao's China, among many unsavory regimes, to put pressure on the Soviet Union. If Washington wants to prevail in this new Cold War with Russia, it needs to be similarly strategic in its outlook. Go to CNN.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Today marks 60 days of Putin's war in Ukraine. This week, Russia began an offensive in the Donbas region, and the military revealed its goal was to assert full control over the south of the country. But the Ukrainian resistance is strong, They remain in control of certain key cities, and President Zelensky expressed confidence that Ukraine would defeat Russian forces now that his pleas for arms have finally been answered. I wanted to get an assessment of this new Russian offensive and of Ukraine's ability to counter it. I'm joined by CNN military analyst General Mark Hertling. General, the Russians have put an enormous amount of firepower and manpower, and you can see it in the ravaging of a town like Mariupol. Um, is russia going to prevail because of that just the sheer force of that russian firepower
2: you know free the the russian artillery is in great quantity and quantity has a quality all of its own Uh, but i believe based on what they're attempting to do in this new phase of the operation that ukraine is prepared to conduct counter artillery fires as well as to maneuver forces to counter any activity Along three very distinct axes of advance that Russia has has actually compressed their operations into. Uh, you know, you're talking about three zones of operations from Kharkiv southeast into the Donbas, uh, from the north and east of Zaporizhia into the Donetsk Oblast, and in the kherson Mikolaev axis along the Black Sea. They're attempting the Russians are attempting to tie down the reserves of the joint force along these several axes. And at the same time, they're going to continue this long-range harassing missile fire and rocket fire into some key major cities, which they have no intent of taking right now. It's just to uh, deflect the the attention of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military to help save their, their civilian population.
1: How should we think about Mariupol, which seems to be, I mean, the city seems completely destroyed. Um, What is the, you know, can can Ukraine
2: hold out? Well, they've done an unbelievable job in terms of the forces that are in the city holding out against three different axes of advance by Russian forces. It has been, from a military perspective, from my observations, a phenomenal uh, siege operations by the Russians. But they have failed just because of the will of the Ukrainian fighters that are inside Uh, that plant. Uh, Those fighters, those Ukrainians, have held up a, a large amount of Russian forces in an area that both sides need. That town of Mariupol, that once very large port city, has roads, railroads, and in fact rivers going in different directions, and it's a key logistics hub. And as we get into this phase of the fight, logistics will be the most important aspect of this attrition warfare.
1: Mark, you told me uh, privately that there was a distinction between Ukraine uh, or Ukrainian effort to defeat the Russian army versus destroy the Russian army. We have about a minute. Can you just briefly explain that vital distinction?
2: Yeah, both of those terms have doctrinal definitions in the military. For defeat means that it ta- defeat takes away the ability of a force to continue their operations. They can no longer either supply themselves, man their force move and fire. Destroy means that they can no longer contribute to any kind of fight, even from a stationary position, that the force is so depleted and destroyed that it, can no, it no longer poses a threat to their enemy. So those are the things I'll be looking for. And, and we saw a, a, a defeat of the Russian forces in the northern sector. What I'm seeing the potential for is Ukraine to destroy the remaining forces of the Russian army, army with the kind of artillery forces. But there's a danger in that, too. It will put Mr. Putin on the true horns of a dilemma if he no longer has a security force to execute his, uh, his desires and his strategic objectives. I
1: assume you mean that he can then escalate with missiles and such. Uh, Mark Hertling, pleasure to have you on.
2: Pleasure, Pari. Thank you.
1: Next on GPS, the West is as engaged as it's ever been in the war in Ukraine. But what about the rest of the world? I'll discuss with an all-star panel when we come back. The West's arms to Ukraine have undoubtedly boosted the country's defense. But what is the West's long game to secure peace in Ukraine and in Europe? What should it be? Joining me now, David Miliband, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, former Foreign Minister of Britain, Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America, and Keshore Mahbubani, a distinguished fellow at the National University of Singapore, and longtime former diplomat. Uh, Anri, what should the West's long-term, long, long game be here?
3: So the first part of that game has to be simply to stop the fighting. We're going to see the complete destruction of Eastern and Southern Ukraine. And if you look at what happened after 2014, when they took over part of Eastern Ukraine and Crimea, it, it can just go forever fighting. So we have to stop the fighting. Second, however, we actually need a geopolitical configuration that is not Russia and China Europe and the United States and the rest of the world. And if you look at what happened with the human rights vote, you saw India, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, Egypt, Indonesia, all abstained. That is not a good geopolitical configuration. So the United States actually wants not to isolate Russia and push it closer to China for the long term. And then longest of all, The United States needs to think about what is a European security architecture that makes Europe actually whole and free and safe. I don't think we get there with Putin uh, in power, but Putin's not going to be in power forever. And we actually have to think about the next couple of decades where we can protect Ukraine, but Russia is once again integrated into Europe.
1: But he's in his late 60s. David Miliband, I mean, he's not going anywhere anytime soon, and he's not giving up, it seems like, anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I think there's one overriding question, which is whether or not the dispensation after 2014, with Crimea under effective Russian control, Donbass, etc., whether that holds, whether Russia succeeds in claiming more territory in the east and south, or whether it's pushed back. Now, in thinking about that, there's a couple of important things. One, the lesson of the last 30 years to me, or one of the lessons, has been an underestimation of the agency of the Ukrainians themselves. They are center stage in this, and the first choice is for them, not for the West, if they want to fight for their country, that's their choice. Secondly, I do think we have to understand that the, at stake here is on the one hand a world of anarchy, because that is what is being unleashed in Mariupol and elsewhere, versus some kind of rules and some kind of order. And that's why the framing that I think the West should be adopting is not democracy versus autocracy, but rules versus absolutely. anarchy. I think that's a really imp- a fundamental part of this. Thirdly, I think Anne-Marie is absolutely right to, to herald or to point out, that while the West is more united than it was before, the world is equally divided. And the votes that she's referred to at the UN should be a a fundamental concern. I'm sure Kishore will come in uh, on this. But from my point of view, the strategy has to be about more than a Europe hold and free. It has to be about a world that has some rules to govern the way in which it's run.
1: Okay, sure let's let's get to precisely this issue why is it that you know when people think about democracy versus autocracy the problem with that formulation as David very well put it is um, some of the world's largest democracies are at, at best sitting on the fence India Indonesia Brazil even Mexico uh, wh- what do you think is going on from your perspective
4: well I think as you know when Russia invaded, Ukraine, most of the world was horrified, it was terrible. And there was a great global consensus against it. But now I share the concerns of Anne Marie and David that clearly the West, as you know, represents 12% of the world's population. 88% lives outside the West. And in the perception of the 88% has shifted in the last two months or so. And they, what they see now is on the one hand, and I agree with David, that's a legal moral dimension here that what Russia is doing is wrong, but the rest of the world can also see that this is a geopolitical game where the West is trying to weaken Russia and not really searching for peace in Ukraine. And therefore the rest of the world is saying, okay, if that's gonna be your game in Ukraine, if you wanna weaken Russia, you wanna weaken Putin, that's your agenda. That's not our agenda. Our agenda is create a better world of rules and, and, and predictability. And that's what the rest of the world will want to see some kind of a, a, a clear idea of where are we going with all these you know moves in Ukraine? What's the destination?
1: But Kishore, it's Putin who doesn't want to negotiate. And until the Russians feel that they are forced to the negotiating table, You're not going to get a peace deal. Zelensky has from day one offered to to negotiate and has offered major concessions publicly like Ukrainian neutrality and no NATO. It is Putin who is not doing it because it appears he wants greater control over Ukraine. What do you do then?
4: Well, you know, I was a diplomat for 33 years, uh, foreign, as you know. And in diplomacy, it's not what people say publicly. Uh, That is their position. It's what they're prepared to negotiate uh, privately. And as you know, our good friend Henry Kissinger suggested a formula in 2014 uh, in his Washington Post article. And I do believe that what Henry Kissinger proposed in 2014, of course, it's got to be amended because we're in 2022. The basic outlines where Ukraine is free to choose its own destiny, free to join the European Union, but not join NATO clearly and explicitly, and also work out some kind of compromise between the eastern and western sections of the country. Don't ban Russian from the country, for example. So there are ways and means of achieving a diplomatic settlement, and that's the tragedy of Ukraine, because the outline of a settlement was given by Henry Kissinger eight years ago.
1: David Miliband, you know, again, it feels to me like Zelensky has proposed variations of what, what Kishore is talking. I think
0: you're right. Remember, George Kennan said 50 or 60 years ago, Russia's tragedy is that it can only see Ukraine either as a vassal or an enemy. And what he said then, it's actually Russia's crime today because what they've done is invade a neighboring state. And the challenge that you're laying down, I think, is absolutely right. The Ukrainians are not the aggressors here, the unspeakable scenes that we're seeing in Mariupol that I fear are going to be repeated in other parts of the east of the country, where there are, there's more besiegement to come. What we have here is a classic scissors effect, where the greater and greater misery within Ukraine is going to find ripple effects around the world, because remember the impact on food prices, the impact on energy prices, the impact on, in fact, at a time of a global debt crisis that's looming for too many emerging economies. That, those are forces that have been unleashed by this invasion. But it's not an invasion that has been uh, precipitated by any actions on the part of the Ukrainians. And that's why I come back down to this uh, question that the choice lies in Moscow. If it insists on seeing a vassal or an enemy next door in Ukraine, it's a recipe for the kind of pulverization, obliteration that's going on at the moment.
1: All right. uh, Stay with us. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about Russia, Ukraine, but also about the French elections which are going on as we speak. And we are back with David Miliband, and marie Slaughter, and Kishore Mabubani in Singapore. Uh, Anne-Marie, the, the, the point David was making about the agency of the Ukrainian people, they have a voice, they have a vote. Well, now you have the Swedes and the Finns saying they want to be part of NATO. Not for sure, but they seem to be moving along that track. What should NATO do in that circumstance?
3: NATO should take its time, above all. Uh, There's a real opportunity here to think much more creatively about European security architectures and and Western security architectures that do not simply expand NATO ever further to the Russian border, which honestly, it's not at all clear that NATO will accept, that the American people will accept. But more importantly, you could have the United States, Canada, Germany, uh, Britain, uh, with a guarantee, a security guarantee for Finland and Sweden, for really the Nordics. You can think about a security architecture that works, but that then allows, again, over the course of decades, for a far more flexible set of European security architectures that eventually would include Russia. Russia is part of Europe, right? Russia is part of Europe. We get If you think about Western literature, music, art, math, all of that, That is the Russian people, and we're not going to have security in this century, nor are we going to be able to work on the global problems that that menace all of us, unless we can at least imagine a security architecture that includes uh, Russia. This moment of possible expansion of NATO should be a trigger for rethinking, not for simply mindly expanding.
1: Quick thought on that, and then I want to ask you, Macron seems like he's going to win in France, but with a much lower margin than he did the last time, than Chirac did against uh, Marine Le Pen's father. Uh, you know, how troubled are you by the rise of this far-right populism in France?
0: So look, if you're a, a Swede or a, a Finn, you don't want creativity at the moment, you want security because you've seen what's happened to the neighbours. And I think that that is a really fundamental point that if they qualify, then they should be admitted because it's a security pact that will benefit from their commitment. And it's a defensive alliance, NATO, not an offensive alliance. And whenever people talk about NATO, quote, unquote, enlargement, I always remind them these are countries opting to join in because of what they fear from the east. On the French point, the significance of the election isn't just that Mrs. Le Pen doesn't win, if indeed that's the way things come out. The Macron government has actually, on economic terms, been a successful government. But you're right to draw attention to this rising tide that's gone from... 2% 2% to 7% to 17%, now query to 35 or 40% on the far right. My own view, though, is that President Macron is not going to be twiddling his thumbs for the next five years. He's going to be an activist uh, president who sees the historic significance of this moment. I think he will bolster the German commitment that was made in February to rethink its international posture. And I also think he'll understand that Europe has to think in different ways about its global engagement, not just China, uh, but the world uh, on a much uh, wider scale. Africa, significantly important for him. Middle East, too. And I think that's very, very important. And I think could herald some really innovative policymaking of the kind that, that uh, Anne-Marie has has talked about. Kishore,
1: um, one of the big questions a lot of people have is what is China's role here? Um, chi- you know, China... 10 years ago, seemed like a country that wanted to be a kind of equal partner with the United States in co-managing the world. People talked about a a G2, um, wanted to be much bigger at the UN and all that kind of thing. Right now, it feels in a much more defensive posture, strongly aligning itself with Russia, which really has become a kind of rogue state. Um, Is this where China wants to be, the kind of in the alliance of Russia, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, you know, those are the countries that have voted with Russia. Um, What what do you think, how do you you think China is looking at this?
4: Well, there's no doubt that China has lost out uh, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In, In many ways, there's global instability. There's been Western solidarity. The global economy is going down. But at the same time, the fundamental directions of China haven't changed. Because China, at the end of the day, is still the biggest beneficiary of the 1945 rules-based order that the West gifted uh, to the world. China is the world's number one trading power. And I want to emphasize a key point. Eh? East Asia, which has got the world's largest share of population, is at peace, the guns are silent. And the reason why the guns are silent is that in this region, there's a series of pragmatic accommodations. So on a somewhat metaphysical level, the West has got to stop seeing the world in black and white terms, and see it in terms of shades of gray. And believe me, that China will be much happier being integrated with the whole world and not just be seen just as an ally of Russia because they don't see that necessarily as a long-term asset. So the game that is being played in East Asia is a complex one where you have like a kaleidoscopic arrangement in this region and that's what you need in Europe as Anne Murray said. Don't make it a black and white issue between NATO and Russia. Include Russia and include China
1: include Russia, even with Putin waging this war, or or wait wait it out?
4: Well, I think at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself a simple question. Farid, I completely agreed with you when you opened this program by saying that the US must have an accommodation with Mohammed bin Salman. You're right, he's done terrible things. But in the same way, Putin has done terrible things. But is he going to go away? And this is where, this is the fundamental mistake You know, when you saw Modi embracing Putin, that was a signal that India thinks that Putin is here to stay. So we have to live with the world that we have, which is imperfect, which is difficult, which is hard to manage. But it's better to manage it than to try and stereotype it in black and white divisions.
1: On that philosophical note, Kishore Mabubani, David Miliband, and marie Slaughter, thank you so much. If you want to understand more about Putin and his government from a particular point of view, watch a new documentary premiering on CNN tonight. The Sundance Award winning CNN film Navalny follows the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny through his political rise, attempted assassination, the investigation into his poisoning. Navalny airs tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern on CNN. When we come back from the crisis in Ukraine to a crisis around the globe, climate change on this Earth Day weekend, we will talk to a man with a big idea to bring clean energy to a billion people when we come back. Friday was Earth Day, a reminder that amid all the acute crises in the world today, the long-term climate crisis rages on. Earth's leaders made some progress at last year's COP26 climate conference, but the finger was pointed at India and China for watering down the final agreement. It highlights the frustration felt by many climate activists. No matter how much they reduce carbon emissions in their own countries, India and China remain addicted to coal. Well, the Rockefeller Foundation leads a group of organizations that have a big idea. They aim to raise $100 billion in public and private funds to bring renewable power to some 1 billion people and avoid sending 4 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. I spoke to Raj Shah about this. He is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation and the former head of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Welcome, Raj. Thanks, Fareed. So first, let me put this in perspective. It would be fair to say I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation is famous for Uh, igniting the green revolution around the world, which created agricultural productivity that allowed countries like India to feed itself, in fact, become a food exporter. Is this on the scale of that kind of effort?
5: This is absolutely on that scale. And this is uh, perhaps a bigger challenge. You know, today, in order for us to defeat climate change, we have to approach this problem in a way that includes everybody. And nearly 3 billion people on this planet only consume less than 1,000 kilowatt hours per year of energy and electricity. That's one twelfth of what a typical American would consume. So they're going to consume more energy over time. And the question is, is it going to be more coal or is it going to be renewable electrification and new energy technologies that can protect our planet and help those important families and communities lift themselves up? And we're uh, advocating for the latter. So
1: tell us what is you know, with the Green Revolution, there was all this new technology that was, was, was used. What is the technology at the core of your bet? What is it that makes you think you can provide that much power, uh, energy, that much power, that much electricity to those many people?
5: Well, the answer to that question is really renewable energy systems. We've seen over the last decade, as Rockefeller has been pioneering this work to reach lower income communities with, say, solar mini grids, we've seen the the cost of power go down significantly. Photovoltaics have gone down 90%. Energy storage is down more than 80%. We're about to make a huge leap into lithium-ion phosphate battery storage for stationary grids and small mini and micro grids. It's now cheaper to provide power this way than it is to provide it through either dirty diesel generators or coal connected to grids that try to reach into these communities and do so poorly. So I've in, walked in through case, these communities. In, in that and case, seen why, why is the market not doing
1: it already? Why, why do we need the Rockefeller Foundation?
5: Well, most government utilities look at providing power to rural communities in particular as just a traditional loss maker. You know, to them, it's uh, you build a big coal plant near a city. Uh, connected to a grid the extra cost of connecting grid connections out to rural communities to villages to small towns and cities in those settings is is expensive and then the power that they deliver on it is is erratic and their systems are not very good for doing that these new systems are loaded with technology in addition to photovoltaics and battery storage they also use remote artificial intelligence based energy management systems we have smart meters that allow a very poor household to pay for only what they consume and do so via their phone and do it uh, very efficiently so that these systems are are economically productive and frankly for because these work uh, we've partnered with Tata Power which is now rolling out 10,000 of these systems in India. We'll get the cost down to under 15 cents a kilowatt hour, at which point it beats every alternative source of energy. And will help 25 million people not just move out of poverty, but do it on a green development path that's safe for our planet and for their local communities.
1: When will we see uh, real results on this kind of scale you're describing? Because as you said, so far what you've done is, is impressive, but, but small scale. When, when will we see millions and millions and millions of people on these grids?
5: Well, you're absolutely right. First, I'd say uh, we've already reached about a million customers, 550,000 in India alone. And what we see from those customers is not just that they pay their bills and they use power and electricity. We see that they move themselves up the economic ladder. They might buy an electric sewing machine and start a small business, or they might be an agricultural producer who then uses a rice hulling machine to, you know, improve their economics of their own uh, business and lift their families up. That trend is taking off all over the world. And we believe that we will hit the targets we uh, defined at the COP of reaching a billion people within a decade with renewable energy so that they're no longer underserved and they're finally connected to the economic ladder of globalization and they can lift up themselves and their communities out of poverty.
1: Rajshah, this is a terrific, ambitious project, and we wish you well. Thank you.
5: Thank you for it.
1: Next on GPS, it has come as no surprise that Western countries have condemned Russia's aggression and sent supplies to bolster Ukraine's resistance. But did you know that Russia's closest allies have been surprisingly wary of signing on to Vladimir Putin's war? Why? That story after the break. And now for the last look. For all of Putin's outlandish claims of wanting to de-Nazify Ukraine, his real aims have been evident from the start, turning the country into a puppet state and restoring some of the lost glory of the Soviet empire. But this war has shown how little Moscow has actually gotten from cultivating its own sphere of influence since the Soviet Union collapsed. After the Cold War, most of the former communist states in Europe took a fiercely anti-Russian stance and joined NATO or the European Union. Other countries, in Central Asia, for example, stayed in Moscow's orbit. In 1992, they formed the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, Russia's counterpart to NATO. Current members are Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. In 2014, all those nations except Tajikistan joined Putin's answer to the European Union, the Eurasian Economic Union. These countries all trade heavily with Russia and host Russian bases or military facilities. In January, facing anti-government unrest, Kazakhstan's ruler called in CSTO troops. The mostly Russian forces helped restore order. In 2020, Armenia fought a bloody war with Azerbaijan. Russia brokered a truce and dispatched Russian soldiers to keep the peace. Yet despite these many connections, during Russia's war in Ukraine, it has gotten almost nothing from Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. None have contributed troops or supplies. According to NBC, Kazakhstan refused a Russian request for troops, though Kazakhstan denies a request was ever made. Whatever the case, it's all a remarkable contrast to the immense help Ukraine has gotten from countries it has no formal alliance with. Even Kazakhstan has sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Of course, these Central Asian countries are small and couldn't offer much material support to Russia anyway, but you would expect them to stand with Moscow in the court of international opinion. Instead, as the economist points out, they have generally maintained neutrality They've made carefully worded statements or stayed silent. None have recognized the breakaway republics in Donbass. They all abstained in the main UN votes condemning Russian aggression, though most of them did vote to keep Russia in the UN Human Rights Council. Belarus is the one country that has given Russia major assistance. The two nations enjoy a special relationship, having agreed in 1999 to form a so-called union state. In 2020, when massive protests threatened to topple Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko, Putin came to his rescue with financing and the promise of troops. So over the last few months, Lukashenko has let Russia use his territory as a staging ground for invading Ukraine. Belarus has also consistently voted with Russia in the U.N., But Belarus hasn't entirely acted as a Russian vassal. Like the Central Asian countries, it hasn't recognized the breakaway Donbass republics. More importantly, it has ruled out sending its own troops to Ukraine. Think about how different all this is from the heyday of the Soviet Union. In Moscow's misadventure in Afghanistan, the Kremlin could mobilize material and manpower from across the Soviet republics. In quashing the Prague Spring of 1968, the Soviet Union received military support from Bulgaria, Poland, and Hungary. The real story here may be the divide between the rulers and the public in these pro-Moscow states. For example, the Belarusian dictator depends on the military to stay in power. Analysts believe if Lukashenko sends his troops to die in Russia's war, he could lose the military support and lose control of his country. Why? because only 3% of Belarusians want Belarus to actively participate in the war. Belarusian activists have repeatedly sabotaged their country's railway system, hobbling Russia's ability to move men and equipment. This is the kind of ally Putin is likely to get, even if he prevails in Ukraine, a repressive government in Kyiv with little popular support and thus limited capacity to help Russia. Because at the end of the day, even in dictatorships, the voice of the people matters. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash me country. Max subscription required.